you saw how amazingly that hymn reflects not only what we long for for Corey Grace, for all the children of, of this church, but for ourselves to behold the, the wondrous mystery. Will you take out your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 2? We've been working verse by verse through John's gospel for a number of months now, and at this point, our Lord's popularity, His fame has been growing week by week. The tide is going to turn with today's text because our Lord, by His actions, is going to confront and condemn the entire Jewish religious enterprise. And and I use that word enterprise on purpose because this text is going to show us in the first century, the worship of God in Israel was big business. And our Lord has no patience for such corrupted worship. Before I read God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Lamb of God, we ask that you would be present in your word this morning and that those who are hurting here, the afflicted, would be comforted, that the balm of the gospel would be applied to their hearts and the nearness of Jesus would be their comfort. And I pray for those who are comfortable and complacent in their Christian walk, that you would afflict them. For those who are not yet in Christ, that you would burden their consciences with their own sin, that they may run to Jesus as the true and only Savior. And for those of us who at times can be so worldly in our thinking and our living, I pray that you would awaken the sleeper this morning, that we would seek Jesus Christ with all our heart, and that we would share his sentiment that zeal for this house consumes us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to the reading of God's Word, John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money, maker, money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for, the, for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. My guess is that the Jesus that we find in this text is not the Jesus most of us like to think of. Most of us like to think of Jesus in terms of a gentle, mild man who embraced children and willingly gave up his life for those he so loved, and that is completely true. But what matters is not the way we like to think of Jesus. What matters is who Jesus is, and in Jesus, we see a man 
who is overwhelmingly gentle and meek and welcoming, who took utter delight even attending to young children, and at the same time we see one who is so fiercely zealous for the glory of his Father that he will cause people to go running from him in fear because they tread upon his Father's glory. Most of us have a hard time conceiving of this Jesus. We like to think of gentle Jesus. We don't acknowledge a lot of times that he is a fierce lion. You know, C.S. Lewis gives a wonderful picture of this in his book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Edmund and Lucy, they're traveling. They see a, a beautiful horizon. There's green uh, in, the, in the meadow. There, there's blue sky. And right ahead of them, there's a white dot. And as they're walking towards them, they, they try to figure out what it is. And as they get closer, they realize it's a lamb. And they meet the lamb, of course. This is, this is from Lewis's wonderful imagination. But they begin to talk with the lamb and walk with the lamb. And they begin to talk with the lamb about Aslan. Aslan is the lion who, in, in many ways, represents Christ in the story. And as they, they walk with the lamb, something wonderful happens. In, in Lewis's own words, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed. And he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. The Lamb of God is the Lion. We saw that Jesus is the Lamb back in chapter 1. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Indeed, Jesus is brimming with grace and welcomes sinners to himself. And yet, Here we see him fierce as a lion, particularly when people tread upon the glory of his father. You know, John, this leaves an indelible imprint on John's heart. And so in in Revelation chapter 6, John speaks of Jesus in terms of the wrath of the lamb. That, That can only make sense if the lion and the lamb are one in Christ Jesus. And so as we work by this, through this text, verse by verse today, Uh, there's going to be two truths that you need to keep in tandem. Our Lord Jesus, the Savior of sinners, is so incredibly gracious towards us, and yet he is utterly filled with zeal for the glory of his Father. The Lamb is the Lion. So let's look at the text, and just by way of context, Our Lord and his disciples, last week we saw they attended a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. That was where Jesus did his first public miracle, turning water into wine. And then they they went down from Cana to Capernaum, about a 20-mile journey. We're not told how long they stay there, but we know it's springtime because the Passover is coming. And so Jesus and the disciples are heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, Passover was the biggest event on the Jewish calendar. It was a time of commemoration. Uh, Looking back, by Jesus' day, 1,400 years, when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. And for a faithful Jewish male, 12 years old or older, keeping the Passover was an obligation. And we know uh, Luke 2.41 tells us uh, that Jesus went to Jerusalem at the Passover, as was his custom. So we can imagine by the time this scene comes, Jesus uh, is about 30 years old. He's been to Jerusalem for the Passover at least 18 times out of obedience to the Scriptures. If Jesus did not observe the Passover for our sake, we have no Savior. 
Now, that's a clue, by the way, about what's going to happen here in this passage. Jesus' commitment to observe the Passover as God had instructed is reflective of Jesus' absolute commitment to biblical worship. See, Jesus is utterly consumed with worshiping his Father just as his Father commanded, just as his Father instructed Now, all the gospel writers make mention of the Passover, but in John's gospel, the Passover plays the biggest role. Uh, One of the ways John keeps time for us in the life of Jesus is telling us Jesus went to the Passover. So we see that here in John 2. If you were to flip over to John 6, verse 4, it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And then in John 11, same thing. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. In fact, I, I don't know if you realize this, it's, it's commonly understood that Jesus had a three-year public ministry, but, but we're not explicitly told that. We know that from looking at how many Passovers he attended in John's gospel. That's how important the Passover was in John's mind. He's going to make nine references to the Passover overall in his gospel, and it's going to culminate with that final Passover, and it's not just the final Passover of Jesus, it was the final Passover forever. Because at that final Passover, our Lord transformed the Passover celebration to the Lord's Supper. Why does John hold the Passover in such a prominent place? Because it was a picture of how God delivers his people. You think back, the Jews had been in slavery in Egypt. It was a miserable time of slavery, and God was going to deliver them. There was going to be an angel of death, an angel of wrath that was going to come and kill the firstborn son in every home that did not have the blood of an unblemished lamb painted over the doorpost. And if there was the blood of that lamb, the angel of death would pass over the house. That's how we get that term. And God instituted not only that original Passover as a picture of his salvation for the people through the blood of a lamb, but he instructed that it be commemorated every single year. The Passover was a huge deal. Imagine an event, the magnitude of Easter and Christmas rolled into one. Jerusalem was not a particularly large city, but at Passover, it it swelled to, to as many as two million people. Uh, who came from all over the Middle East to worship. An event like this took great preparation. Roads were prepared, bridges rebuilt, everything was cleaned in the city in preparation for the the, uh, swaths of people that would attend, that would ascend Jerusalem. And by the way, that word ascend is intentional there. John says in the text, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was about a half mile above the rest of the city, uh, the rest of the area. And so as pilgrims would climb the hill up to Jerusalem, they would sing what we call the Psalms of Ascent. I don't know if you noticed that in our order of worship, but we sang, uh, our, excuse me, our call to worship was one of the Psalms of Ascent. Our, our, our confession of faith and our assurance of pardon were from the Psalms of Ascent. These Psalms from Psalm 120 to 134, they were what the pilgrims sang as they ascended up to Jerusalem. And so, as millions of, of pilgrims make this journey, the half mile up to Jerusalem, singing psalms and longing for the day that the Messiah would come, this must have been the high point of spiritual life in Judaism. 
but actually it wasn't. Undoubtedly, there were many godly pilgrims that made the journey, but the religious enterprise of Jesus' day was anything but godly. It it was full of people just going through the motions, but their hearts were far from God. You know, this has long been one of Israel's great sins and the sins of God's people, the church, that we draw near with our bodies, but oftentimes our hearts are far away. And we're, we're distracted, we're thinking of other things. Our hearts are not enthralled with the glory of God. And that was what was happening with the people. They showed up physically in worship, but they were bowed down before other gods. Let me ask you before we move any further, would that describe you this morning? You are physically present, but is your heart enthralled with the God that we have come to worship? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? soul, mind, and strength. Now, none of us love them as much as we ought, and yet so often we can have cold, complacent hearts towards him. It was that kind of heart that Jesus said in Matthew 15, in vain do they worship me. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's exactly what we're seeing in the temple. It's much religious duty, but no devotion. Let me remind you the the history of the temple for a moment. As Jesus approaches the temple, King David had desired to build a house for God. He said, I have a house for myself. It is not fair that you do not. God told David he could buy the threshing floor of Aruna as the site for the temple, but David could not build the temple because he was a man of war. And so it would be David's son Solomon who would build the temple. The, The temple was a glorious building, a glorious edifice. Uh, completed around 970 BC or so until the Babylonians destroyed it in 586. After the Babylonian exile, the temple was rebuilt, but it was never as grand. And actually in Jesus' day, they had a very unlikely ally. It was King Herod that had commissioned expanding and uh, heightening the temple, making it great again. And temple, uh, Herod, this same Herod, by the way, that killed all the babies hoping to get to Jesus, He helped to rebuild it. It was his political maneuver to pacify the people. And so it was still being rebuilt, even in Jesus' day. So they say to him, you know, the temple's, we've been building this for 46 years. It actually wouldn't be completed for another 30 or so years until 63 AD. But the main thing to know about the temple is that it was to be a place of solemn, joyful worship as people met with their God. Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. As pilgrims traveled to Jerusalem, price gouging was an accepted reality. It was like going to Disney World and buying a drink. You just know it's going to cost you a lot. People were selling animals at, at, at tremendous markups, and so for those who traveled, oftentimes they didn't travel with their animals. They just planned to buy them at the temple, and they knew that it was going to cost them a lot. You know, even the dove, which Leviticus uh, commanded be the sacrifice for the poor, and it was only to cost a couple of cents as a mark of God's grace. They were charging several dollars for it. It was was a markup of thousands of percent. Extortion in the name of worship was the norm in the temple in Jesus' day, and religion was huge business. In fact, one of the problems was the high priest, Annas, was the one that was making the most money off of it. And many of the priests made money. So what would happen if you did decide, well, we're going to bring our own lamb so we don't have to buy it at these markups? 
the priest would have to inspect the lamb, and so often they would find something wrong with it so that you had to buy from them. There was a point some years before this scene where a man came into the temple, ransacked it, and stole about 20, the equivalent today of about $20 million, and that was not even a dent in the temple treasury. Well, they were the money changers. For pilgrims who came from outside of Israel, their money was unacceptable. It was unclean. Why? Because it had faces of Caesar or of foreign gods, and so it was not acceptable in the temple. But the money changers were there, happy to exchange the foreign currency for their money, of course, for a fee. The, the fee just to exchange currency in those days was about a day's wage for a common laborer, just to exchange the money. And so this place that was designed for joyful, reverent worship and fellowship with God has become an utter circus. Rather than praying, praising, and communing with God, the sounds that you would hear in the temple were huckstering and bartering and conning people out of their money. I think it's a profound statement at the end of verse 14 when it says the money changers were sitting there. They've made themselves at home in the house of God. This is big business. This is how we we get wealthy. You know, the only person in this passage that seems to be out of place in the house of God is the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. He's the only person that seems to think anything is wrong here. He thought the temple ought to be a place of sincere biblical worship. Flack, we must have the discernment to realize that it is possible to go into worship. It is possible to go into many churches this very moment and the presence of God be utterly foreign to the people. That they have no expectation of meeting with a living God. And that was exactly the case. That was exactly the case as Jesus goes into the temple. And I pray that if this is ever the case here, that we at First Scots go through the motions of outward religion but have no expectation of communing with the living God, I pray that God would cause us to fall on our faces and cry out to Him to forgive our heartless worship and grant us the grace of repentance that once again we may seek for the glory of the Lamb to be seen, lest we too be confronted with the wrath of the lion. Look what the lamb who is the lion did in verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their uh, tables. Likely what happened, our Lord found cords that were used, probably leather straps that were used to lead the animals in uh, and had been discarded And he carefully begins collecting them and braiding them together. It probably took several minutes to make this whip of cords. And so you can imagine his disciples watching, wondering, is he going to do anything about this? You know, by this time, Jesus is becoming fairly well known. So there are probably other people in the temple who realize, hey, that's, that's Jesus. What is he about to do? And so it sounds like Jesus, the first thing he does is he sits down with these cords and starts braiding them together. Let me make another application, dear ones. Never mistake the patience of God for permission to sin. Never mistake the patience of God for his approval of what you are doing. Our Lord watched as this wickedness unfolded, and likewise, his eye is upon us. Now, that's a greatly encouraging 
him, isn't it? His eye is on the sparrow. But do you realize his eye is upon you 24-7? His eye sees what you do in private. His eyes see even the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so let me warn you, if you're engaging in secret sin, it is always committed before an audience of one. And if you ever think that just because you haven't been caught yet, that God hasn't stopped you dead in your tracks, if you ever think that means he approves of it, you are mistaken. Why is God patient with us in our sin? What's the purpose? If, if you have persevered in hypocrisy, if you've persevered in secret sin, why has he not struck you dead in your tracks at this point? Why has he not struck me dead in my tracks? Look with me at Romans 2 for a moment. Romans 2, starting at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What do we do when we realize that, that every sin we have ever committed happened under the all-seeing eye of Jesus Christ? You know, you can either run from him and try to hide your sin and try to make up for it yourself, but you can never outrun the wrath of the lion. Or you can come to him in faith and repentance and receive the grace of the lamb. But let me warn you, dear ones, you will deal with Jesus one way or another. And do not mistake the fact that secret sins have not been caught for the approval of the living God. His patience is intended to lead you to repentance. And Jesus stood watching the money changers, these hucksters are storing up wrath for themselves. And with wrath, it's not a question of if, but when. Look at verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. I don't know how you visualize this scene, but it's utter chaos as tens of thousands of people and animals are scattering. It's, it's a stampede in every direction. And Jesus sees the lambs running in every direction, and he thinks of how he is the Lamb of God. He sees the money that the pilgrims were bringing in, especially for God in their offering, being skimmed by con men. He sees the pigeons. John makes special note of the pigeons. You remember when Jesus was born, his parents did not have the money for the more expensive sacrifice, so they brought doves, and so Jesus would have had a particular place in his heart for these poor people that were being trampled upon, being extorted to bring sacrifices. And so Jesus particularly calls out those who take advantage of the poor, that they might spend every last shekel in their pocket to buy an overpriced bird. This is a, an intense scene. Commentator, it's so intense, and sometimes people aren't sure what to do with it to such a degree that commentators try to sanitize Jesus' actions here. 
They say that the whip Jesus made, it wasn't, it wasn't leather. It wouldn't hurt anybody or anything. It was probably made of dried grass just to get everybody's attention. No, Jesus is utterly angry here. It's not a sinful anger, the kind you and I get. You know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, he says, in your anger do not sin. There is a such thing as righteous anger. It's right to be angry when the glory of God is being trampled upon. And so the Lamb of God here shows himself to be the Lion of Judah. As the money changers and the salespeople are simply storing up wrath for themselves, obscuring the glory of God. The disciples stand watching this in utter amazement. And as they do, we're told the Spirit brought to their minds a verse that they had probably learned in their childhood. It was from Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's what they were seeing, the fulfillment of that psalm. The one who perfectly loved the worship of his Father. You know, many of us aren't sure what to do with this Jesus, are we? We're, we're told so often of a Jesus who is all love, who just goes with the flow, who, who doesn't upset the boat, who doesn't judge, and that Jesus is a figment of your imagination. To Jesus, nothing is more sacred than the worship of his Father. This scene of Jesus cleansing the temple happened not just once, but twice in Jesus' ministry. It happened here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's going to happen again at the end of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, Mark 11, he clears the temple again. You know, our culture makes an idol out of tolerance, but one thing Jesus will not tolerate is when people mock the worship of his Father through empty religion. You know, that helps us to understand how Jesus can be both the lion and the lamb. As the lion, he is zealous for the worship of his Father's glory. And so he became the lamb who bore the sins of his people. Why? John 4 tells us the Father is seeking worshipers. And those who worship him will worship in spirit and in truth. Do you understand the end goal of our salvation is not our pleasure, but God's glory. And you are not saved to go live any way you want to. You are saved that you may live your life to the glory of God. The lion is the lamb. But Jesus' righteous anger here is going to be met with unrighteous anger from the religious leaders. Jesus has run off all their business. We're not going to tolerate this. They go to Jesus, verse 18. What sign do you give us? to show uh, that you can do these things. How do you have the authority? What right do you have to do that? Authenticate yourself. The Jews were always asking Jesus that. Prove to us that you're worth worshiping. And they set the parameters. They define who God is. You know, I love that. When you open the book of Genesis, it does not make a rational argument for God. It simply starts off, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It assumes God and explains the origin of humanity. We often try to do the opposite. We assume we are the final measure and God needs to prove himself to us. Well, Jesus doesn't do that here. He, he answers the fool according to his folly. He makes this enigmatic statement in verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now we have the benefit of being this side of the cross and the resurrection. So we, 
we might understand it, but we would not have understood it in those days. And so his hearers, and they would never let go of this, even at his trial, they brought this back up against him. They think he's saying, you know, give me 72 hours and I'll build this thing back up. You can tear down the temple, stone upon stone, give me 72 hours, I'll build it back up. Now, he could have, but that's not what he meant. What he means is so much better. He means this, if you were to kill me, when you kill me, according to my father's timetable for all of this, death will not hold me. I will come out of the grave in three days. You know, this is so delightful, dear ones, isn't it? Jesus says, destroy this temple. And they didn't understand it, but look, the John explains it in verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. We said the purpose of the temple was for the people to meet with God. Jesus is our temple. In fact, we saw it back in chapter 1. In verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word there for dwelt is the same word used for tabernacle in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so Jesus is the dwelling place of God. We do not need the building. We need the presence of Jesus Christ. Does that not make you want to leap for joy, dear ones? That if you have seen Jesus Christ, you have seen the Father. When you draw near to him, you have drawn near to God. It should cause us to leap for joy. You know, under the old covenant, there was that intricate system of laws and rules and priests, and you had the extravagant temple, all of which was essential to worship, but even that worship could not truly bring people near. And so you had the temple layout, you had the court of the Gentiles, and it was concentric circles. If you were a Gentile, you couldn't go any further. Then you had the court of the Jewish women, but the women couldn't go any further. Then you had the, the court of the Jewish men, but they couldn't go any further. And then the priests could go a little further in, but then at the center where God dwelt, you had the Holy of Holies, and it was off limits for 364 days a year. The message of the Old Testament temple was, you're not welcome here. Now, one day a year, the high priest could enter on behalf of all the people, and with every step, he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice. But what was the message? You're unwelcome here. You cannot, because of sin, enter into the temple, into the most holy place. And now Jesus is showing us by his example and by his life that the old system of restrictions and exclusivity has passed away. And now we can draw all the way into the heart of God through Jesus Christ. God is no longer keeping us at a distance, but he welcomes us in. We saw that last week as Jesus took the waters of ceremonial washing at the wedding in Cana and he turned them into the wine of celebration. And that is exactly what the gospel does. It takes those regulations which used to say you are not welcome here and it turns them into rejoicing in the heart of the Christian that Jesus Christ has drawn us in to the heart of the Father. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. The old covenant with all its rules and ceremonial laws, it's passed away. So too will this temple. And to truly meet with God in worship, you don't come to a building, you don't come to a religious system. Jesus says, come to me. You don't need a sinful high priest who takes from you 
You have the great high priest who gives himself for you. You don't bring a lamb because we have the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to a building in the Middle East because Jesus Christ is the temple. He is the true meeting place between God and man. And where Jesus is, there the presence of God is. Paul says, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. This dear lamb lion, the one that would conquer death, that we might live forever with him in fellowship. He is still so passionate about his father's glory. Do you understand this, dear ones? That as we gather together in corporate worship week by week, Jesus is our worship leader, leading us from heaven by his spirit and the word and the worship that we offered with our stammering tongues and our distracted minds, Jesus perfects it and he offers it to his Father as an offering of praise and adoration. And so our worship, the center of our worship, must always be the Lamb who is the Lion. The Gospel must be what informs and shapes everything we do as we draw near to God. You know, it's so easy to err on one side or the other. Sometimes we can overemphasize the nearness of the lamb at the expense of his awesome transcendence. We can be so casual about worship that we miss the reverence, or we can so focus on the transcendence that we may have a beautiful worship service, but God feels miles away. In Jesus Christ, the lamb draws near to us with all the glory of the lion, and that is how we worship him. As we worship and as Jesus Christ leads us, he's the lamb who is near to us, who is gentle towards us, speaking his word into our hearts. And as the lion, what he is doing this very moment is he is confirming his word in our hearts, equipping us as an army ready to march forth into the world to proclaim the glory of God. That's why Jesus came. That's why the lamb came. That's why the lion came. Cleanse the temple because he longs for acceptable worship for his Father, because his Father is worthy of it. And as we gather to celebrate and to worship, what we are doing is the fulfillment of exactly what Jesus Christ came to accomplish. How do we apply this text? I think there's several poignant applications. Twice in this passage, the Spirit brings to mind things that the disciples previously didn't really understand. You see it when Jesus is cleansing the temple and and Psalm 69 comes to their minds, zeal for your house will consume me. You see it when Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They didn't understand that till later, but the Spirit brought it to their minds. You know, they would have been clueless about all of this without the Word of God, wouldn't they? So too are you and I. Dear ones, study the Scriptures. They alone can make you wise to understand who God is and how he's created this world and the salvation that we have in him. And when you come to a passage that is difficult, take encouragement from this. The disciples didn't understand until the Holy Spirit brought the light bulb to them. When you come to a passage and you're reading through Leviticus right now in your daily readings, and it gets hard and you think, I have no idea what in the world that is talking about, store it up in your heart. Store God's word up in your heart because what often happens is that later on, just as he did with the disciples, the Holy Spirit will illumine it to you and you'll go, ah, I get it now. It makes sense. So that's the first application. The Holy Spirit brings the word that is stored up in our hearts to our minds at just the right time. 
Second, Jesus has the authority to command whatever he wants from us. He had the right, of course, to go into the temple and do what he did. It belongs to him. It was filled with things that did not belong there. Does he have the right to come into your life and get rid of the things that do not belong there? He does every day. If you are his by virtue of his creation, and if you are Christians, you are his by virtue of his redemption. Acts 20, Paul says, he purchased you with his precious blood. And so Jesus has every right to speak into our lives, sometimes words that are very difficult. You think of 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When God confronts our sin in scripture, he's doing the exact same thing that Jesus did in the temple. And his intent is to drive it out from your life. And that's why Hebrews 12 says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. When the scriptures confront sin in your life and you gloss over it, you are refusing him who speaks. Do not resist him. He loves his children and out of his great love for us, he purifies us, driving our idols far from our hearts. That leads to a third thing, and it's a very solemn application. I want you to see the danger of ignoring repeated warnings from Jesus. Jesus cleansed the temple at the start of his ministry. He cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry. Neither time did the people listen. And after the second time, Jesus never again set foot in that temple. Do you understand that? Do you understand the profundity of that? The temple was soon destroyed. Today, it's surrounded by Islamic shrines. It's a parable for us. What happens when a church refuses to heed the warnings of God in Scripture? When you hear the sermon, and yet it makes no impact upon your life, to such a degree that you've become sermon-proof, What happens when a church does that? The glory departs. The Jews had no interest in hearing Jesus' rebuke, and the glory departed from them. And the same is true today. He may not close the doors of the church yet, but do not mistake his patience for his approval. Many churches are meeting this very morning with beautiful buildings, great history, melodious choirs, and the one thing missing is the glory of God, and most people don't have a clue. Second Timothy 4, I just referenced it a moment ago, all t- uh, the end of chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Well then, in 4, Paul tells Timothy to be on the lookout, because there are going to be people who will not endure sound teaching, they have itching ears and will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will wander away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. What happens, dear ones, when God's people continue to harden their hearts, when the church ignores the scriptures, when they begin to love 
or even just tolerate unbiblical, empty, gospel-less preaching, that is a sign of God's judgment. If you can sit through a worship service that is not filled with Scripture, and it makes no impact upon your soul, it is a sign of God's judgment in those churches. Do not assume that God's judgment simply is limited to closing the doors of the church. Oftentimes, His judgment is seen by constant ignoring of the ministry of the Word to such a degree that God removes the lampstand, and instead you get empty, gospelless preaching. Do not, dear ones, for the sake of your soul and for the sake of this church, do not harden your hearts against God's Word, but heed the Word that His glory might dwell here till Jesus returns. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord our God, there is much in this text that is beyond our grasp, but the things that that we do grasp are more than enough for us. Oh, Lord, teach us to hear your word, that we not be like the Jewish religious enterprise was that went through the motions of religion, but there was no worship. Father, teach us to worship you as we heed your word and as we follow the leadership of our worship leader, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask all this in his matchless name. Amen.